0: open in front of you or, or on your tablet however you're, you're following along you might find that um, really helpful. Um, last week we were looking at how Jesus came to save us from sin and so um, this week what we're thinking about is, is how that becomes possible uh, in some ways that Jesus was slain for sin and we'll uh, look at that from Isaiah 53 but it's probably worth uh, thinking a little of the context of Isaiah here just to kind of we're coming into the 53rd chapter of a, <laughs> of a long book and so so as not to just kind of jump in not knowing exactly where this where this fits but the first 39 sort of chapters of Isaiah could be summarized by saying that there's uh, judgment and hope for Israel God's people And this sort of ends in chapter 39 with a prediction that um, God's people are going to find themselves in exile in in Babylon. And the hope for God's people here, the hope for redemption, for positive change out of all of this, was that a new holy city would be brought about by a messianic king. And so from chapters 40 to 48, we get uh, an announcement of this hope that this exile will end. That a new kingdom is coming. But sadly, we find that Israel, God's people, is still rebellious. So now in chapters 49 to 55, where we find our, our passage today, we hear about God's servant, the one who will do the mission that Israel had failed to do. The one who will restore Israel to God and will be a light to the nations. And then we get uh, a picture of the servants, God's people inheriting the kingdom in the final 10, 11 chapters. And the message of Isaiah really is how through the suffering servant, this king sent by God, he will usher in the hope for a restored creation by forming a faithful covenant community from all nations. So chapter 53, where we'll specifically focus this morning, is the fourth of four songs about this servant who makes all this possible. So firstly, in these first three verses here, we see a servant rejected by his own. In the last chapter, uh, chapter 52, there, verses 14 and 15, um, we find out that the world will be shocked by this coming servant. And they'll be shocked because they haven't heard of this message before. Their response will be, we've never really heard of a servant like this. What are we to make of it? They've never heard of a deliverer who would willingly fall so low in order to deliver them. And they'll be shocked by what is an unfamiliar message. But who is it who hasn't heard here? Well, here it's the nations of the world that it's talking about. That's the audience. Verse 15 of chapter 52 tells us, the kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, then they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The people of the world are going to hear an unfamiliar message. And they're going to say, well, we've never really heard of this before, but are going to come to understand. And now we come to ask, well, what of God's people? If this is what happens when actually... You know, the people of the world, people who haven't heard of this before, uh, see and experience this. Well, then what of God's people? And we see that Jesus, the servant, spoiler, I've, I've, I've sort of ruined that already, haven't I, uh, will be rejected by his own. Just notice here that um, Isaiah uses, I don't know if this is the right kind of uh, technical term, but he uses a sort of prophetic future tense. What I mean is, you know, he, he will talk in the past tense, was, even though these are things that haven't happened yet, because it's something of a building kind of expectation and certainty and confidence in it, that he can talk of it as a past tense thing, even though actually this is something to come in the future. What of God's own people then, verse one here, who has believed what they heard? It's a different audience. Now it's an audience you actually have heard. But the result isn't much better. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In some ways, the problem of the servant here is that they're a surprising arm of the Lord. Arm is, is is a phrase that's used frequently throughout. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy here to speak of the sort of action of the Lord the direct sort of intervention and action of God to uh, do for his people what they can't do for themselves it's a show of his greatness in chapter 40 verse 10 says behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him it's partly his salvation chapter 48 verse 14 the lord loves him he shall perform his purpose on babylon and his arm shall be against the chaldeans it's about judgment chapter 51 verse 5 we read that my righteousness draws near my salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples the coastlands hope for me and my arm for my arm they wait and it's also about his holiness in chapter 52 verse 10 the lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But I don't think that when he comes, they really thought that his servant would look quite like he did. It's a surprise, even for those who had heard. He grew up before him, it tells us, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It's not a typical picture of glory here. Like a young plant that's small, that's only just creeping up above the soil. The kind of plant that um, we're capable of sort of cultivating here. One that's a surprise, that's small, a root out of dry ground that doesn't really look that great. The initial worship and acceptance at his birth, fades as Jesus grew, and as he seems maybe less impressive in some ways. Maybe Jesus is like the opposite to Saul, as Israel are looking to appoint a king, they look at Saul, and Saul's the one who's head and shoulders above everybody else, the one who's more handsome, stronger, more rugged. This This is what a king looks like, big, strong, attractive personality, But with Jesus, with this servant, not so much so. If anything, it might be the person that you'd say really doesn't look to be the one. You know, sometimes people's successes are complete surprises, aren't they? Sometimes people don't look as if they'd be the one who would do so well. Walt Disney was fired from his job in a newspaper before he became a famous filmmaker. He was fired for being not creative enough. Ironically enough, and his Mickey Mouse uh, stories were rejected as being too scary. Albert Einstein couldn't speak until he was four and his sort of primary school teachers wrote him off somewhat as being lazy, couldn't really understand why he'd asked so many abstract questions. J.K. Rowling uh, received dozens of rejections for the same series of books that are now known the world over. And Michael Jordan unbelievably had to fight and fight to get any sort of look in for even a college space and then became the greatest basketball player of all time, known the world over. Success comes in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's a surprise to people because people don't perhaps fit their expectation of what it should look like. And yet maybe it's a case that our expectations are are just wrong sometimes commentator says this about this he says deliverers are dominating forceful attractive people who by their personal magnetism draw people to themselves and convince people to do what they want them to do people who refuse to follow that leadership frequently find themselves uh uh, crushed and tossed aside a baby born in the back stable of a village in this would shake the roman empire a man quietly coming to the great preacher of the day asking to be baptized This is the advent of the man who would be heralded as the saviour of the world. No, this is not what we think the arm of the Lord should look like. And God's people don't expect his servant to quite look like this. He was despised, verse three, and rejected by men that had the word despised. It's like considered to be worthless. You see this picked up in John's introduction to his gospel, don't you? That he came to his own and his own didn't know him a man of sorrows or pains and acquainted with grief or sickness. What an intro, what a sort of moniker to have. One who's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, he doesn't just come for the broken, for the hurting. He does do that. But of course, actually, it's more than that. It's that he himself has experienced the same suffering, grief, rejection, betrayal, he doesn't just come for those who experience that but he has experienced it himself too he's one from whom men hide their faces why hide well perhaps it's that thing that sometimes when you're well and somebody else really isn't and you almost feel bad that that you feel well and you don't know well you know how how do I you know come alongside him in a way that doesn't sort of make them feel bad here or or I don't quite know what to say it's that sort of sense of awkwardness and em- embarrassment how do I handle myself here I don't know one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not As we, we don't consider him to be worth very much or to be paid much attention to gospel eventually changes the way in which we view Jesus so that we'd see him as of surpassing worth to everything else that we might possibly have. But until the gospel changes that, the way we view him is the way he's viewed here. He's rejected by his own. Secondly here, verses four to nine here, we see a righteous representative here. And one of the things we see here in in God's people here is, is that they're wrong in, in being right. Um, and what I mean is this, you know, possibly more than anything from sort of close relationships, um, that there are sometimes that you can be technically correct uh, and practically wrong. It's not always about being right, is it? Sometimes you could be technically right in a disagreement or argument misunderstanding. But sometimes you actually have to let go of that. <laughs> for the surpassing worth and importance of maintaining a good relationship. Sometimes you can actually find yourself being wrong in being in the right, can't you? Is winning the argument really worth losing the relationship? Is there really as much payoff in having the final word? Not always. They were right in their judgment that this had come from God. we told you that they um, saw him as smitten by God and afflicted by him they are technically right but the assumptions that they have as to why that's happening are wrong while God had brought suffering and judgment upon his servant here it wasn't because the servant was disobedient it wasn't a case of chickens coming home to roost as they may have thought instead the servant was suffering as a righteous representative for an unrighteous rabble they were wrong in being right, they were right that this was coming from God, but they were wrong as to why. He had done no wrong. Isaiah makes clear here that the sufferings of the servant weren't his fault, They're not a result of his sins, but the result of our sins. And yet they lead to our healing. Verse four here He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The sickness and grief that causes us to be tempted to hide, that it was talking about in verse three, He has carried. It was our sickness, our grief that he carries for us. And you get this contrast in verses four to six here of him, he, and us, and our, and we, six times in those verses. While we together have sinned, he alone faces it. He's stricken, verse four, that is he's struck, He's, he's touched, he's played, smitten by God. He's the one who has come here as the arm of the Lord, and yet it looks like he's been hit by that very same arm of the Lord that we heard Isaiah talking about throughout his book here. And yet, but, verse 5 here, now Isaiah's correcting them. The servant is not judged for his actions or his failings, uh, rather, he faces the judgment owed to us. Verse 5 here, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. You see that sort of intensifying, that he's wounded and then he's crushed for our transgressions, for our iniquities. Two negatives that he holds off from us, our iniquities, our transgressions that he's wounded for, that he's crushed for. And now two positives that we are given as a result here, verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his stripes we're healed our transgressions our iniquities are not held over us in fact he is crushed and wounded for them and rather than facing chastisement and punishment we are brought peace we're healed in verse three we were told that this servant was a man of pains acquainted with sickness and the question, I guess, is, well, how how does that happen? In some ways, that's not always immediately evident in the gospel accounts until we get towards the cross. Where is he facing sickness of his own and grief of his own? Well, he's carrying ours upon himself. And now we get an answer. So, well, why the need? Why, why is this such a big deal that it would need a servant to face such suffering here verse six all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way it's a lostness of our own doing you know there's different ways in which you can get lost isn't there I have no sense of direction so it's a frequent experience for me Uh, thankfully google maps is really really helpful although Even with Google Maps, uh, I I can still get lost uh, sometimes. Uh, You know, sometimes that isn't entirely your own fault, or at least perhaps that's me defending myself. But, you know, sometimes maps don't update or sometimes a postcode doesn't quite recognise the nuances of the streets sort of around you. And sometimes it's just simply that I struggle to interpret the picture on the map. But this is a different kind of lostness. This is a lostness where actually you've been told where to go. And it's been repeated. And you know that that's right. But you've just decided that somehow you know better and somehow refused to listen to those good directions. We've all gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The logic sort of was here for the audience that, well, if, if he suffered here, this servant, well, it must be for his iniquity. But here the servant suffers for our Iniquity. And that language that's been used here in verse 4 of carrying, of bearing that for us is the language of the temple. Specifically, it's the language of the sacrifices that they performed. Commentator uh, John Oswald puts it like this the sacrificial animal carries the sins of the offerer away so that the offerer does not carry them anymore. The animal does not merely die because the offerer sinned, but it in the offerer's place, doing what the offerer must do otherwise. She said, in, God, in God's grace, he had given a way by which people's sins might be forgiven and cleansed. They might approach God again with confidence. And that was that something would have to die in our place for us. Now, much like those sacrifices, the servant, the one from God, of all the perfection of God is now performing that role for us is now the one dying in our place for us in verses 7 to 9 here we see the submission of this servant the innocence of the servant and the injustice that the servant faced he was oppressed and afflicted yet opened not his mouth he was like a lamb led to the slaughter like a sheep before shearers is silent he opened not his mouth the servant uh, not only faithfully endures this mission but he raises no complaint, no protest, no grumble. I don't know if you've ever watched the programme Undercover Boss... Uh, it's another one of those great sort of car crash reality TV things where you <laughs> either see great people at work, you get recognised and you know, get promotional and, that, and that's really great, really feel good or do you know someone who's just really bad at their job sort of gets exposed and you feel a bit like actually that's probably a good thing as the, their boss is working alongside them and uh, was watching one the other day that Karis that showed me and this customer service assistant, assistant in a restaurant was, was found out for just being really terrible uh, customer service assistant this was just not the role for them Uh, and he's letting rip to his boss about how he hates having to put customers on a pedestal Uh, he talks about the lobby getting busy because it's generally just people taking too long to eat Uh, saying that children and old people are literally the worst because none of them know what they want when they're ordering and probably the worst and classic line of it of him saying it's not wrong of me to hate people and being somewhat surprised that and sort of facing uh, some disciplinary action in the, in the aftermath of it. This is a terrible servant, someone who gives a really terrible service and is really resenting of it, isn't it? Well, this servant is the complete opposite. There's no protest. There's no complaint. There's no begrudging nature to it. Goes without raising a sound. He's made, made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man, and he had done no violence there's no deceit in his mouth this is a faithful servant who dies alongside those who are wicked those who've deserved judgment even though he doesn't he's put in the same place where it looks as though well he must be the same mustn't he otherwise why would he be here and jesus will die alongside two criminals presumed that he's just like them and of course he's not but as far as it looks he's numbered amongst them though he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth The servant here suffers not because of his own sin, not because of his own lack of acumen, but he suffers as a righteous representative for us, for our sins. He was rejected by his own. He's a righteous representative. And lastly, we see that he's fulfilling an established plan and he's receiving an eternal reward. Isaiah shows that the servant's suffering was God's long held plan and it leads to an eternal reward for his servant. Verse 10 here, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. They were wrong in being right, they were right that the judgment and the suffering had come from God, but their reasoning was wrong, the workings out were wrong, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he's put him to grief, but this wasn't plan B, this was always God's plan, it was always his will, and what was this plan? Well verse 10 continues, his soul makes an offering for sin, That sacrificial language from verses 4 and 6 gets now really specific, that that is what Jesus was doing. The servant isn't a victim of suffering because of us or an ally of suffering with us, though those things are partly true too. But most of all, he's an offering for us, that he's making atonement, that he's dying in order to make us right before God. And yet look at the reward for the servant, because though the servant faces God's judgment, he faces suffering. Look at the reward. He's not left in that place. God doesn't leave him shortchanged. He shall see his offspring, verse 10, and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This isn't the end. This is victory, not defeat. It, it, it looks a lot like defeat, doesn't it? And that's some of the problem, isn't it? Even as Jesus hangs on the cross, They'll say, you know you talked of God saving people, save yourself, but this isn't defeat, and this isn't the end. We shouldn't think that the innocent servant here is you know sort of uh, disowned and uh, short changed by God here. he suffers now, yes, but later he's glorified Philippians 2 we thought about last week talks of Jesus not seeing equality with God as a thing to be grasped but taking the form of the servant um, becoming uh, made in human likeness he gave himself over to God to obey him even to the point of death on a cross but how does it end it ends by saying therefore now he's been glorified and one day every name will praise him on heaven and on earth it doesn't end with the seeming defeat here of this death out of the anguish of his soul he shall see the light and be satisfied god won't abandon his faithful servant and that's good news That's good news because it means he won't abandon you either the righteous one my servant will make a way to be accounted will make many sorry to be accounted righteous it's using the same uh, language that's used way back in Genesis 15 about how God counted the righteous because he believed in him because he trusted him same language that's used in other parts of the New Testament in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 it's a, a legal accounting uh, sort of language I don't know if you've ever watched much of Dragon's Den but um, one of the recurring arguments with um, entrepreneurs is the valuing of people's businesses and it always really comes down to well what is the basis on which you value a company and they're always trying to convince people that actually it's what the books say it's what your accounts say it's what the numbers say that is your value not you know sort of your estimation and valuation of it but what do the numbers say this is an accounting and legal term here and the idea is no matter what you may feel no matter what you may see or think of yourself If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you're turning away from sin and trusting him, then the books say you are righteous. You are counted as far as what matters as being righteous. It's imputed. It's put in there in the record. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. The cross is this dual transaction. On the one hand, our sins being born and carried by Jesus, put upon him. He's not committed them. He's done no wrong. He isn't those things, but they've been placed upon him and he suffers for them as if he had but there's this other transaction that occurs. Not only are we being made innocent, but we're being made righteous as his righteousness is placed upon us. His righteousness that we have not done, that we are not in and of ourselves, but that is counted to us. It's even better than us not receiving the judgment we do deserve. It's us receiving the blessing and the reward that we could not deserve to. Our will divide a portion Uh, with the great it tells us in verse 12 he shall divide the spoil with the many there's a play on words there that both great and many or strong and many can both mean the same thing I think it should go this way round: that I'll uh, divide with him that is the servant a portion with the great the one who in his earthly life as a servant looks weak looks like he's defeated poured out to death even he doesn't look strong but he is Portion divided with the great. And what does he do with that? He should divide the spoil with the many, with us, with those same many who are accounted righteous. The servant receives an eternal reward, and we do too. What an amazing thing. And then in verse 12, we get this recap here of what he does that he's poured out his soul to death, that he's numbered with the transgressors but even more Jesus continues the servant here continues to serve the wrongdoers he makes intercession for the transgressors he will forgive those who abuse him he'll sacrifice himself for them and will even say father forgive them they know not what they do but now even more he'll pray for us to intercede for us to appeal for us before the father his faithful servant, fulfilling an established plan, receiving an eternal reward. It's not defeat. After all, it's victory. And Jesus himself claims that this was about him. Luke 22, verse 37, he'll quote from verse 12 there. He'll say how he was numbered amongst the transgressors. In John 12, verse 38, that we began with earlier on, and say who has believed he has heard from us this faithful suffering servant is jesus this makes sense of all that he is doing and all that happened to him he's not some eternal loser to be felt sorry for he's fulfilling god's plan and he's receiving his eternal reward so then what do we do how do we respond to this Well, firstly, do nothing. Do nothing. Stop. Sit. Rest. Let him serve you. That's not a laziness. That's that's a humility. You have to have things the right way round. That he serves you before you can ever do anything for him. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he serves his disciples, washing their feet. Before they're on mission, they're served by him. And they have to open themselves to do that. And that's difficult. You know, people will respond and say, well, no, I can't possibly have you wash my feet. And Jesus will say, you must, you must be served by me before you can ever do anything for me. So firstly, do nothing but stop and reflect on all that Jesus has done for you. Receive that. Trust in it. But secondly, if Jesus has so loved us, if he has so served us, despite our sins, then go. And wherever God has put you, whoever he's put you around, serve those God has put you around press into all that Jesus has done for you, to serve you in this radical, overwhelming way. And seek to serve others as the suffering, faithful servant has suffered and served for you and for I. I'm going to pray and then we will um, sing a closing song together. Father God, I... Thank you for your wonderful grace towards us. Um, This passage in many ways is is a really challenging read because to think of all that your son would face for us on our behalf, because of us, is really quite moving. Um, And, you know, it's hard not to feel uh, a great sense of sorrow for all that we've caused you to face and yet I think the overwhelming messages of hopefulness of all that you were willing to do for us Jesus I thank you that you came as a faithful servant of your father that you were willing to give up so much of your power and privilege and position to come and to live as one of us and to die for us that we might be set free that we might find new life, that you might do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves to save us from sin. Thank you for having served us so amazingly, abundantly. Help us, Lord, want to just rest in your having served us and allowing you to do that for us, opening ourselves to actually be served by you. But Lord, help us as well, Lord, where you've put us, with the opportunities you've given us, with the people you've put us around, that Lord, as you have loved and served us, we might be able to love and serve those you've put us around, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, our fellow students, whoever it may be. that We might be able to serve them as you have served and loved us. And so we thank you so much for all that you have done and ask for your help, please, Lord, to live out of it. Holy Spirit, strengthen us and equip us, Lord, to live out of this great truth, this great hope, this great salvation.